Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Dalibor Rohatch, author of Governing the EU in an Age of Division, published by Ed- Edward Algar next week on the 28th of November. Dr. Rohatch is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington and a research fellow at the Wilfrid Martin Center for European Studies in Brussels. He was educated in economics at Charles University Prague and then at Oxford, at George Mason University and King's College London. He's a prolific contributor to journals and news outlets, including the New York Post and co-hosts the Very Good Eastern Front podcast. In his resume and his 2016 book, Towards an Imperfect Union, A Conservative Case for the EU, Dr. Rohatch comes at the European Union from an unusual direction. His argument is, quote, unabashedly pro-European, both in the sense that it wishes prosperity and peace for the European continent, and in the sense that it sees the EU and much of its institutional architecture as important components of its success, unquote. The book is a, is a short and refreshingly realistic assessment of the EU's performance during a decade of unprecedented challenge and how it can adapt to the radically changed economic and geopolitical environment. Dalibor, welcome to the podcast. Tim, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, as I said in the intro, um, I said you were coming at the EU from an unusual direction, but being conservative and pro-EU used to be very normal and, and still is in many European countries. So... It, but it's become unusual in the UK and the US. Now, I guess there are many reasons you wrote this book, but was one of them to try and uh, reclaim a tradition that has been lost in the wake of Brexit and, and Trump? I suppose that's a, that's a fair assessment. I mean, I grew up being influenced by classical liberal and conservative thinkers, by the Hayek's and Friedman's and Oakshots and Burke's of the world. Um, living in Eastern Europe, I always looked up to the figures of, 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 of English and American, uh, British and American conservative thought. Um, and then I was I was somewhat sort of taken aback by, by the turn that conservatism in English-speaking world has taken uh, over the past decade when uh, this idea that conservatives ought to be primarily interested in conserving order and institutions that work got replaced by a sudden urge to break things, including things that, uh, to me at least, seem to have been working all right, including the you know European Union, America's alliances, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I presume that we might be past the peak of that urge on the on the conservative right, and I think it is important to invest in ideas and to make the case for why, uh, you know, much of the post-war uh, international order, including the European project, are integral components of our prosperity and peace and 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 many of the desirable features of our life in, 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 you know, in the Western world that we tend to take for granted. Yeah, you, you wrote a piece, I think it was in 2016 for a magazine, but also, as I mentioned, the, the book you wrote uh, in the same year, in which you admitted that you had been a, a Eurosceptic and had been, had been converted. What, what was it that, uh, that convinced you to, to go the other way? Well, I still think that, and we can get into this further in the in, in the conversation that that the EU, as a very sort of peculiar, sui generis entity, 
has many flaws and problems and there are many valid criticisms that can be addressed at the EU's institutional architecture. Uh, but by and large, uh, looking at it from a longer historical perspective, it you know represents a dramatic improvement over what we've taken uh, as, as the sort of baseline of, of European history. I mean, it's much better for the French and the Germans and the Dutch to argue about agricultural subsidies than to, to wage war against each other. I say that somewhat somewhat flippantly, but there has been I mean this notion which surprised me on the conservative right, particularly in the UK in the in the run up to the Brexit referendum, to, to, to sort of see the EU as something that's completely alien to you know a conservative view of the world, to be free market economics and and nothing could be you know, further from the truth. I mean, there is a, this you know long-standing tradition on the free market, right, going back into the 30s and 40s, that focused in a very serious way on international institutional architecture that would enable markets in Europe to be f- open and integrated. And 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 this generation of, of of thinkers around Hayek and Repke and others were very forthcoming in in their embrace of international federalism as a solution to what they saw was ailing Europe in, in 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 the first half of the 20th century. At the same time, on the European Christian democratic right, you had a long-standing tradition of particularly Catholic thinkers that were looking, for example, to Switzerland as a as a model of federal governance for for Europe. And uh and it looks like really in 2015, in 2016, it's almost as if the British conservative tradition, and I'm not talking just about politicians who jumped on the on the Brexit train, but but the sort of broader commentariat and intellectuals uh, had had somehow lost touch with that with those with those traditions. It seemed to me. Yeah, actually, yeah. Let's. I mean, coming to the book, you you one of the things you discuss very early on is is the history of this kind of liberal thinking about Europe and you 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 talk about the, the the piece that Hayek wrote at the early on in the war that I guess many people don't know about could could you expand on this uh this paper he wrote and his his vision of a liberal federation that would constrain what he considered to be bad national policy making well 1930s were an interesting period when you had this uh cohort of, of of thinkers many of them coming from vienna or from 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 the german speaking world who had to find refuge uh, in switzerland in english speaking countries running away from from nazism uh, at the time unlike today it's fair to say when you know the academic world is dominated by us and uk universities uh german speaking world and vienna were really places of, of real intellectual ferment and 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 debates that were really at the cutting edge of say the economic profession or or social sciences more generally so 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 many of these thinkers especially on the sort of classical liberal right were for understandable reasons horrified by what was happening in europe by the disintegration of of the liberal international order that that once existed uh by by the rise of of, of nazism in germany and and soviet expansionism uh and they were thinking about you know how 
a international liberal order could be could be restored. And so, so Hayek was in particular very critical of the 19th century classical liberal tradition for essentially neglecting this international component of how you can have free markets and limited constitutional government. He said that this was one of the biggest failures of that classical liberal project that it didn't really engage seriously with the sort of preconditions that were needed for a liberal order to thrive. And already in 1938, you had the Walter Lippmann Colloquium in Paris that convened a bunch of classical liberal thinkers from the United States, from from from, from Europe, including from German-speaking countries, uh, where, where these, these ideas were debated. And, and Hayek's article, which came out in 1939, was, was kind of a blueprint for, for how people could think about uh, international federalism at the at the European level. Uh, it was followed by by several other thinkers, some of whom uh, actually rose to very prominent positions after the war. Uh, Luigi Einaudi, who was uh, who was one of the, uh, the post-war Italian presidents. You had people like Walter Eucken or, or, or Repke who had real influence on on politics and, and policymaking in, in Germany after the war. And, and they were all converging on this notion that uh, then there need to be supranational institutions, not necessarily with the power to do all the things that nation states normally do, but with the power to constrain nation states from pursuing certain policies that would lead to this integration, this this notion that we need to pool our economies in a way to make war unthinkable, I think was was one of the the intuitions that these 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 thinkers did mm. have, and uh, and they indeed provided a lot of input into the early early architecture of the European project. Obviously, the EU, uh, for understandable reasons, has always been a compromise. Of different ideas of different interests, so so I think it's, it's it would be wrong to reduce it to a classical liberal project, but but there is this component to it, and I think it's a it's a, it's a rather important one, and it's one that that I think classical liberals or libertarians and 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 centre right conservatives of today should not give up on too easily. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course uh, one of the key traditions of that. Group of people, I guess, particularly Robko was the was the uh, order liberal tradition, and you, you, I, I sort of sum up the central theme of your book in a quote you have where you say, uh, "quote An important distinction exists between the politics of rules, of which the EU is quite adept, and the politics driven by events, which requires improvisation, risk taking, and alertness to opportunities." End quote. Um, I mean that seems obviously true in the last decade, but could you expand on that point about how the the the, the, the sort of liberal origins of the European Union it in a way have become problematic over the last uh, uh, decade? So it's not an idea that that I originated. This was uh, mm. noted already by Luc van Middelaar, who is a Dutch philosopher who served as a speechwriter to Herman van Rompuy when. Uh, when Van Rompuy served as the president of the of the European Council, and, and I think it's one of those points where uh, this classical liberal or ordo liberal tradition converged with some of the other drivers of European integration. I think there was this notion after the war on the centre left uh, when you read progressive 
center-left thinkers writing about European integration, that, that somehow this project is meant to overcome the old divisions and 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 replace, you know, the nation state and 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 the kind of uh, conflicts that 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 tended to emerge among na- nation states by by qualitatively different political order, and and the idea was that. Uh, you know, in the course of becoming, I suppose, more civilized and progressive and better governed, we'll just have rules for everything. And I mean, you know, order liberals like rules, and also many people on the sort of central left are not averse to sort of rules and regulation. And you know, th- th- there is a grain of truth in the idea of of the EU being, you know, an, an entity that that primarily exercises its, its, its regulatory powers through the single market, through the rules of the um, of the of the monetary union, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I think 2008, 2010, and and the crises of the past decade came as a bit of a surprise to to people who sort of thought that we can engineer away uncertainty and risk and events and. And, and and conflict from from European mm-hmm. politics by just sort of setting up the right kinds of rules and letting you know history run its course as if on autopilot. It just you know didn't work that way, and and, and suddenly European elites, politicians, people in European institutions had to sort of scramble and 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 think about how to respond to these to these to these various crises. And you know we can talk about the specifics, uh, but I would argue that it's been a you know, mixed bag in a, in a, in a, in, in a way, but it certainly was a sort of reminder that, um, you know, the, the world is just sort of too complex and unpredictable to be sort of reduced and governed by, by sort of simple rules based system without any human input. Yeah, actually you, you make, you make a very good point about that. Um, I mean, we saw it in the sovereign debt crisis. We saw it again in the refugee crisis. That um, this, it, you know, the dangers of adhe- adhering very strictly to rules and then collapsing at the last minute, very late in the day, you describe as the two-faced Michaelian approach, cloaking power politics into a language language of technocracy, and then essentially presenting these very radical solutions to a crisis as as a as if people have no alternative to them. Could, could you expand on, on that point? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the real risk that, that the EU has been running into lately, as I see it, is, uh, is, is, is really, you know, being, being unable in a way to, to distinguish between technocracy and, 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 and power politics, confusing the two and, and, and claiming that it was doing one thing when it was doing the the other and i think that has fed into a degree of cynicism that people on the far right the the sort of populists of 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 of, 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 the, of the european continent has has seized on one example was you know the sort of canonically rules driven response of the european commission to the refugee crisis of 2015 when uh Clearly, Europe's borders were being overrun by by an unprecedented number of asylum seekers and and and, and in some cases economic migrants coming to to Europe, while member states were pursuing different asylum policies. And I mean, you know, the Commission's idea was to basically say, well, you know, we have to do burden sharing, and that means that we'll come up with fixed quotas based on. You know some sort of technical 
assessment of, of, of different countries' capabilities, and and that will be the end of it. Obviously, it was opposed by a number of Central Eastern European countries, yet it got passed at the at the at the at the council uh, by qualified majority, which hadn't been used before, or at least not very often, to to resolve conflicts of 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 of, of this kind of salience. And what happened was that um, that directive then got summarily ignored by countries like Poland and Slovakia and Hungary and and others that that voted against it. Uh, and you see this kind of, you know, hollowing out in, in, in some other areas as well, where, uh, for example, in 2021, the Polish Constitutional Tribunal in, in Poland's ongoing standoff with European institutions over rule of law and organization of its judiciary basically ruled that uh, you know this notion of supremacy of EU law over Polish law um, and and supremacy of of EU law over Polish constitutional system didn't exist, and therefore you know European Court of Justice had no no mandate, no legitimacy, no 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 purpose in, in sort of ruling over how how the Poles should de- uh, organize their their judiciary to sort of meet meet European standards. And uh, and, and I mean the danger is that the more you have these sort of unresolved conflicts that are not then addressed through political bar- bargaining and mutual accommodation and so on and so forth. Uh, I mean, the, the more the EU becomes just a sort of hollow hollow shell rather than, than an entity that can effectively set the rules that are then respected. You know, to borrow another example, there was a similar standoff between um, the German Federal Constitutional uh, Court and the European Central Bank, and which has been a repeated one over over the central bank's open market operations, the you know the sort of bond buying programs that the ECB has launched, and there have been several decisions declaring it incompatible with German constitutional law. And and I mean, you know, because the the case is dragged for so long, and because the ECB always had opportunity to sort of rename the program, reframe the program, it just went on to the point when uh, when the ECB's portfolio has what like five trillion euros worth of, of 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 bonds of national governments, which obviously is not received very well by 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 a certain constituency in Germany. Uh, oh, not hollowing out. You you make a is very interesting insights you have where where you sort of imply that people the crisis has moved on from 2015, 2016, maybe even twenty eighteen when there was still talk about the idea of a, of a breakup of the EU. And you now see the greatest risk as a, as a gradual hollowing out. And you, you point out that a hollowed out version of the EU with much of its bureaucratic apparatus could live on for decades. And we've seen this with many institutions that they, once an institution is created and it has staff and it has a bureaucracy, it just stays there forever, basically, even though it has nothing to do. Is this, um, what, 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 what made you think of that as a, as a, as a potential scenario? I think the most important observation is that uh, you know, the, the the case of Brexit made it rather unappealing for other countries to to to, to follow, and you already saw that in the twenty seventeen presidential campaign in France when when uh, Marine Le Pen initially floated the idea of leaving the euro, there was such a massive backlash that she immediately backtracked, and you see it. You know the sort of shift of the conversation, both in France or in Germany, in in in, in recent elections, when when mm. figures on the populist Eurosceptic right had 
really toned down their rhetoric relative to where they where it was just just a few few years ago. I mean, occasionally somebody like Viktor Orban would float this sort of idea of 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 leaving the EU, but but I mean, it really has become. I mean, you're know, just looking at this, you know, the UK's sort of travails with 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 leaving and 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 thinking about what its relationship with with the rest of the EU should be, uh, just made it been a really really sort of unappealing as as as, yeah. as as a sort of model for for others to follow especially for countries that are so deeply integrated uh, in economic terms and and other terms i mean the uk after all is an you know is an island and and has had all kinds of carve outs and opt outs and and so on and so forth for a sort of small you know continental country i think the, the sort of economic fallout would be, would be would be much greater so 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 i don't think that's a that's a real risk anymore what is a risk is that because the eu fundamentally functions as a sort of voluntary association of countries it's you know it's not a prison of nations doesn't have much in terms of coercive powers you know, the worst is it, it can do is to stop disbursement of, of of eu money to to your national budgets so so in a way the compliance with, with the eu's rules and rulings of 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 of, of european code of justice is, is is to some extent to to a large extent voluntary and uh, that can easily create a situation in which the eu makes decisions and those decisions are ignored by countries or subgroups of countries and and yet the eu still lives on i mean we've you know we've seen many organizations uh many international organizations that have outlived their original mandate and they yeah linger on produce white papers seem to have sort of pretenses at policy making but but ultimately do not affect day-to-day life and and i do worry about that quite a bit especially when i see countries you know taking matters into their own hands when it comes to the four freedoms of 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 the freedom of movement of people of 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 goods uh, capital and and services I and mean, we've seen at numerous occasions during the pandemic and also in more recent months uh countries just unilaterally reintroduced border controls for example in the schengen area when i'm not sure there was a compelling sort of national security or other case or at least that case was not made explicitly by 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 by, by national government so i think that the, the more this goes on uh the the closer we might be to a situation in which which the eu becomes a sort of you know less less relevant and less sort of binding institution and more more of a just you know debating debating society mm-hmm. yeah well you're um I've, i mean i've had to read a lot of books on uh uh eastern europe and rule of law issues over the last few years but to me your chapter on what you call the light that didn't fail which it was a dig at even Krustev, i think um was probably the most clear-eyed one I've read of uh, in terms of what the issues are, the combination of the rule of law issue, um, the misuse of EU fiscal transfers, and actually how they have encouragement seeking and corruption. Could you take us th- briefly through that chapter and also onto your discussion of what you call the great conflation? Sure. Um, 
so yes, the, the the title of the chapter is in a way a dig at at Ivan Krastev, who I mean is a you know very interesting, prolific scholar and and certainly someone worth reading. But but in uh, their recent book with with Steve Holmes, or not maybe not so recent, they they paint what struck me as a very pessimistic picture of 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 EU's enlargements and of the overall effect. That 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 these Eastern enlargements had, particularly on Eastern European, Central European societies, where they argue that they basically fed a certain politics of imitation in which Central and Eastern Europeans tried to become like Western Europe, and then they basically became disgusted by this whole enterprise, and that fed into this this backlash led by figures like Jaroslav Kaczynski in Poland and and Viktor Orbán in in Hungary, and I. I, I, I just can't bring myself to look at this experience in in such a such a negative sort of pessimistic pessimistic light. I mean, I came of age in what was what in, in in Slovakia at the time when it was joining about to join the European Union, and mm-hmm. it was a period of you know great ferment, policy experimentation, excitement, uh, which was not driven just by. Slovaks acquiring the Aki communautaire and being sort of subjected to the civilizing forces of the of the EU. I think that's a, that's a view that that just takes away so much of the agency that policymakers in these environments had. Um, and I think the, the sort of more accurate view of things is to is to understand that uh, many of the benefits that that exceeding accession to to the eu generated in 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 that part of the world was related to to competition between central and east european countries that were sort of opening up at the same time to foreign capital and trying to be you know good welcoming attractive places to do business and invest and and that really drove i mean much of the prosperity that you see today in places like if you go to warsaw or tallinn or 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 bratislava the sort of amount of economic progress that had occurred is is really extraordinary, uh, notwithstanding you know many of the flaws and problems that these these societies continue to have. Uh, so I see the effect of, of 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 EU accession as you know overwhelmingly positive, but multifaceted. And one of the downsides was obviously um, the maybe not obviously, but 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 was the inflow, uh, large inflow of of EU funds that followed after joining the club you know the eu is very hard to get into maybe like harvard university but once you are an undergraduate student at harvard it's also very hard to to you know be you know fired from 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 the club you probably are going to graduate if you are if you are already there so uh so 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 the inflow of EU funds, in a way, reinforced some of these pre-existing patterns of political patronage and corruption that had existed, uh, particularly in places like Hungary and, to a lesser extent, Poland. But, but I mean, you know, across the board, countries of Central and Eastern Europe do have a problem with corruption. And I think, you know, the, the worst examples are those when political corruption gets combined with uh, entrenchment of incumbents who are in power. And, and I think. You know, Hungary in that sense is the sort of most most egregious example, and and I think only now the EU is sort of coming to terms with sort of understanding its own role in all this, 
Um, and I think it's going to be a very interesting development to, to sort of follow and watch uh, how and if an agreement is struck between the Commission and governments of Poland and Hungary over the disbursement of of the recovery and resilience facility or next generation EU to to these countries going going forward. Uh, but in any way, that problem I think gets sometimes conflated, sometimes conflated in particularly in Brussels, with mm-hmm. the fact that Central and Eastern Europe is you know a different part of Europe than 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 Western Europe. These are different societies with different historical experiences and therefore different attitudes towards things like immigration, towards things like gay rights, towards things like access to abortion, and. Uh, and 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 that I think you know where, where sort of Krastev might, uh, might have a point is is isn't isn't sort of pointing out that uh, there was this sort of general expectation in the West of of progress as some something inevitable and and you know ex- inexorably marching forward, and that wasn't always the case across European societies and uh, and when this problem of rule of law of political corruption of incumbent entrenchment gets conflated with uh you know concerns about central and eastern european societies not being welcoming to immigrants or or you know having a more uh sort of socially conservative view of things like abortion rights or or or, or, or gay rights i think that's when you know the least responsible actors in those societies get empowered and 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 are able to make uh you know, arguments against European integration that then uh, just turn those countries into, you know, not exactly constructive, constructive actors like like in the case of, of particularly Hungary. Yeah, you make a, an, a, an extraordinary comparison actually between Europe today. I mean, you you make it clear that it's not an exact comparison, but Europe today and um, the United States in in the nineteenth century. So the the the, the Sort of profound schism between two uh, attitudes to to social, social and cultural life. Could you could you explain that? Yeah. So so in nineteenth century America, obviously, the United States were divided very deeply on fundamental questions of values, uh, specifically on the question of uh, of slavery, and. Uh, what happened with the expansion to the West uh, was that new states or territories were created, particularly the, the Kansas Territory and, 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 and Missouri, where uh, these these questions were not exactly resolved. And, and, and perhaps the expectation was that somehow they'll get resolved at, at, the, at the Western frontier. But what happened... Um, in 1840s, 1850s, in places like Missouri and and Kansas, was was that you basically had the sort of low scale civil war as a result of 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 basically sort of debates over over these highly divisive, polarizing issues being sort of outsourced to 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 the Western periphery. And again, like it's it's a very imperfect comparison, uh, but 15, 20 years ago. These questions of gay rights and and access to abortion, etc., were polarizing in Western Europe, at least in some Western European societies, and perhaps continue to be so uh, to 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 this day to to, to some extent. Uh, and and in a way, 
with the accession of Eastern European countries, Central European countries, those countries suddenly had to face those debates, uh, not by their own choosing, but but just by virtue of of, of, of joining the same uh, same 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 club. Not unlike that Western periphery of the United States, and and so perhaps it's not entirely surprising that it fed, you know, the sort of most irresponsible and most polarizing form of of politics in those countries uh as well so so mm-hmm. i mean my, my my only hope is that these conflicts do get resolved eventually uh without the need for you know what actually resolved those conflicts in the united states in in in, in the 18 1860s i mean you know i certainly don't expect that to happen i i don't fear that will happen but 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 those conflicts that exist in Europe are still severe enough uh, to bring about dysfunction and 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 just sort of lack of coherence to to to, to European decision making. Well, uh, we've covered the uh, critique part of the book. Um, the the book has a number of uh, proposals for uh, positive change, and they're probably centered around your this idea of polycentrism. Um, could you expand on what that means and what it means in the context of uh, of the European Union? Sure. Um, so I, I suppose that there's a number of different sort of premises that go into into my sort of practical conclusion side of things. One is is the observation that the EU has gotten significantly more diverse with its explicits enlargements to the to the east both economically both in terms of you know sort of the values set up and and, and view of things such as immigration gay marriage etc etc in terms of the quality of governance in different countries and so to the kinds of deep political cooperation that could have been thinkable among the founding members of the eu might not be possible at eu 27 um and the the other premise is that uh the EU, in my view, should be understood primarily as a platform for for managing disagreement and conflict. That that these things are not going to go away. They are not going to be sort of overcome through inexorable march of history towards ever brighter future. But but are part of the European condition that this is a very diverse, heterogeneous, pluralistic continent, and it's likely to stay that way. Um, with though those sort of starting points uh my wish is in a way to change political culture both in brussels and in national capitals in a way that reduces the stakes of these existing conflicts and the way to do it i think is to is to think about the eu not as of a monolith which is threatened every time there is a crisis or a disagreement in this or that area of policy making but as as of a essentially juxtaposition of different integration projects that can run in parallel, that can encompass a different, slightly different sort of imperfectly overlapping coalitions of of participants um, and uh, that, that would 
cooperate on producing public goods that they they they, they agree are necessary to to produce. I mean, it sounds like you know I'm advocating a sort of this complete disaggregation of the EU into into different sort of things. But but actually, I think some sort of foundational rules are necessary. Uh, in my ideal world, those foundational rules would be much thinner than the existing acquis communautaire. I think the four freedoms are. Are again the, the the sort of beating heart of the of the European project, but but I'm you know just comfortable accepting the EU as it exists in terms of its institutional setup. Right? I don't think a change of treaties is particularly likely or even desirable, given how it would likely go. Yeah. Um, and therefore, I would like countries that want to cooperate more to do so without really having to sort of work their way through the assumption and the rigors of, of, of doing everything through the community method at the level of, you know, EU 27, and rather by relying through the institution that already exists within the Lisbon Treaty of enhanced cooperation that enables countries that want to do more to do more, while, you know, without dragging along countries that are perhaps more skeptical. Of 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 the merits of of cooperating, I think that would sort of reduce the stakes of 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 of, of disagreements that exist in the EU. Would allow uh, progress to take place in areas where it ought to take place. Um, it would uh, it would provide an alternative to you know people trying the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, namely. Uh-huh. Making the case for, you know, getting rid of unanimity and and replacing it by qualified majority vote, and it would also reduce, I think, the sort of stature that that the sort of not exactly constructive autocrats <laughs> such as Viktor Orban enjoy in, in today's mm-hmm. EU by being able to block initiatives and and just being generally unhelpful. Are, are you surprised at how infrequently and has cooperation has been used? I mean. I, the one I followed for a long time was the financial transactions tax, and it went to enhance cooperation with, a bunch, I think, nine countries who were claimed that we're very keen to do it, and was they still still got nowhere. I think after ten, maybe even twelve years. Do you think there's um countries have essentially hidden behind unanimity in a lot of on a lot of issues that they didn't actually really want to resolve? I think that's true in some areas particularly in, in, in foreign policy, where um, for a long time, I think there was this uh, sort of strange uh, symbiotic relationship between Hungary and Germany, when you know, sort of Hungarians would be the ones vetoing things uh, formally, but they were able to do it because they knew that there wouldn't be much of a pushback coming from, from Berlin. Uh but I'm not actually sort of convinced that enhanced cooperation has been so infrequent and 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 sort of odd uh, as, as 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 you suggest. I mean, there are some other examples: European patent, divorce law, uh, but also things like PESCO and 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 defense cooperation are essentially intergovernmental in the sense that yes, they might be sort of relying not on. Article Twenty of of the Lisbon Treaty, but but some other legal setup. But but in their de facto operation, they involve different coalitions of member states, you know, doing things jointly without involving everybody, without 
sort of requiring everybody to sort of be involved in in the in in in, in the same things even perhaps the most important part of the response to the eurozone crisis the european stability mechanism uh was created outside of the scope of european treaties by a sort of subset of 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 of, mm-hmm. of eu eu member states um and to to me uh, that that really should be the way f- forward by default uh especially in areas where we sort of know that relying on 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 the community method gets us nowhere because of individual countries' vetoes. I mean, those vetoes, that veto power exists for a reason, right? I mean, countries like Poland are not going to sign up for a foreign policy uh, that relies on qualified majority rule, particularly Mm -hmm. given their experience with Russia and given the fact that the big players in in Western Europe uh, were consistently wrong from from the perspective of Warsaw on the the subject. So, So, you know, to tell them as Chancellor Scholz suggested earlier this fall in in Prague that you know, we have to get rid of unanimity. Like it's, it's just not going to fly in 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 these in these central and eastern yeah. European capitals. Well, I think that's one of the reasons they like saying it because it, it sounds good, but they they know it won't happen. But uh, on that, I mean, talking about the Prague summit, uh, you you've written you wrote a piece for Politico, um, I think last month where you talked about your hopes and ambitions for the European political community um, as a, a, a crucial bridge or even an outer circle to encompass uh, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, the Western Balkans, but even potentially the UK and Switzerland. What are the realistic ways you think this this could be made to work and, and interact with the European Union? So I, I do think there is a need to... For for member countries of the EU to think carefully about their relationship with countries that are outside of of the EU, and that's in part the UK, which has played, you know, for all the you know domestic omnishambles we've seen over the past year, the UK has played a massively helpful and and and, and constructive role in addressing um, Russia's aggression against Ukraine, uh, yeah. in helping the Ukrainians. I mean, the UK is one of the in a few remaining real military powers in Europe, so 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 the idea that we have to keep the UK close, uh, I think, should be a no-brainer for, for 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 anybody who takes Europe's security seriously. And I've been heartened to see the former Prime Minister uh, go to 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 Prague uh, and to have the UK sign up for a closer relationship with 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 with, with Pesco. Uh, and I would like to see the UK to, you know, think about, you know, ways it can do more things together with 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 with, with the Europeans. I mean, I wouldn't be averse to, to you know, building over time a Swiss-like relationship, you know, mm. tying <laughs> UK markets in particular sectors to to the single European market. Uh, I know it's a very sort of sensitive topic in 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 the British debate right right now, but but ultimately. That strikes me as, as as a way of building a, a sort of sustainable future in which the UK is just not part of those aspects of the European project that 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 have always rubbed the British the wrong way, and is cooperating on in areas where where it makes sense for for both sides and. And something similar, I think, is true of of, of the EU's enlargement, of EU's sort of engagement with with its 
southeastern and eastern neighborhood. Um, for for a while now, further enlargements to the east uh, have seemed unthinkable because of where the majority opinion in, in, in places like France and, and, and Germany was. And, and I think there was there was this sort of fatigue with European institutions sort of going through the motions of of negotiating with say Serbia and and and, and Eastern partnership countries, but everybody sort of knowing that this is this was not going to go anywhere. And that I think like mm-hmm. fed into the cynicism that also exists today in particularly in the Western Balkans towards the towards the EU. And so I was heartened actually to to hear um uh, the Commission President Ursula von der Leyen say in her State of the Union speech in September that uh, Ukraine going forward should be brought into the single market as soon as possible, uh, implying that this could happen without Ukraine necessarily joining the EU uh, mm. at, the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the same time, because obviously for Ukraine to join the EU, I mean, that's they get, you know, it's going to be a, a long process, and it's going to be difficult, and it's going to run into lots of lots of obstacles. But but there is a certain sense of urgency around just you know bringing as many of the benefits of of the European project to the Ukrainians as quickly as 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 as, as, as practical. So so I think sort of you know separating different attributes and sort of dimensions of of of, of, of European integration and treating them on their own merits as opposed to bundling them into the sort of existential sort of issue around accession negotiations would be would be a helpful way to revive the enlargement agenda particularly uh in places like ukraine georgia uh western balkans and hopefully at the later stage you know towards belarus and 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 others who would choose yeah. to choose to sort of become closer with with, 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 with the EU. Yeah. Well, um, as always to close the interview, I've asked my guests to recommend two books, one in their field and one personal choice. Uh, Dalibor, what have you chosen? Well, I have I have two books. I have to say they're both non-fiction books <laughs> that, that deal that, with... That, that's allowed. Some, that's of allowed. The, some of the matters we've discussed already. So, so one very thick volume I'm halfway through, which is absolutely fascinating, is, a, is by Paul Tucker. It's called um, Global Discord Values and Power in a Fractured World Order. And it deals with um, this, this challenge of... Of, of 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 you know facing a world that seems to be deglobalizing and that entails conflicts of values between you know large global powers uh and and tries to provide a way forward for building you know still a sort of rules based order uh within within those those constraints um and the other book i would like to recommend which just come out has, has just come out is by an israeli academic azar gat it's called ideological fixation from the Stone Age to today's culture wars, and it addresses exactly that sort of, you know, the, the sort of human proclivity for adopting, you know, simplifying ideological sets of lenses and how that fuels conflicts over values and how that's, you know, a permanent feature of the human condition, so to speak. 
Great. Well, they're, they're both new ones on the list, so thank you. Um, today, I've been uh, talking to Dalibor Rahach about his governing the EU in an age of division. Dalibor, thanks very much for coming on. Tim, thank you so much for having me.